direction unless we're also willing to embrace sharing in his sufferings. Trials come, don't they? We live by faith. We live through faith. And our faith needs to be genuine. Is that true? Our faith needs to be proved genuine. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Lots of people say that. Lots of people profess profess faith in Jesus. But then you look at their life, and their life doesn't reflect anything like Christ. So the question is, our faith needs to be proved genuine. Well, how does our faith get proved genuine? Does God have any hand in that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How many know he tests our faith? Yes, he does. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we saw last time, he says, We greatly rejoice, and now for a little while we may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved what? Genuine. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our natural default position when trials and difficulties come is what? Do we rejoice? We say, oh, praise God! (laughs) Trials! Is that our natural default position? What's our natural default position? Wah, wah, why me, poor me, sit in the corner, suck my thumb, feel sorry for myself, complain. The Bible says do everything without complaining. I can only do that if I realize there's an overarching purpose, that these trials, these difficulties have a purpose. I don't rejoice in and of the trial itself. I rejoice in the fact that God is working in my life, making me more like him. So I work my way through the grief. I work my way through the disappointment. And I say, Lord, praise you, praise you. You are making me more like you. I will not say that. I could not possibly say that if that were not my overarching goal. I want to be like him. And that's the test for our life. If I don't really want to be like him, what am I going to do? I'm going to just default. I'm going to complain. I may know this, but it's not going to have any any net positive effect in my life unless my goal is, in fact, to be like him. Rejoice! You're nuts! Yes, I am! James says the same thing, doesn't he? James tells us, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and so forth, and he he develops character. In other words, we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. But it's only when you embrace it, only when you engage it. When my son was a little boy, we had to bring discipline to bear. And I had to train him to receive the discipline. I said, you're going to get discipline, If you want to profit from it, you better learn to receive it. So he had to lay there quietly while he got his swats. He did have the right of appeal. He says, may I appeal? I said, you may appeal, but good luck. That's right. 
The same thing is true for us. We have to realize what God's doing and be willing to receive his discipline. Is God mad at us? No. He got all his mad out on the cross, didn't he? He is not mad at us. People say, oh, I must have done something wrong. I'm, I'm such a bad, God must, no, 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 no. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. But he disciplines those he loves. It's like training. If any of you have ever been an athlete or you know anything about athletics, you have to train and train and train hard. And sometimes you feel like you're all alone. No one cares. No one knows. But you have to press through the training because you know that training is, has an end point, doesn't it? It's the same thing with God disciplining us. It's not pun- He's not punishing us. Jesus has already dealt with all of our sins, all of our guilt, and all of the punishment. He took it all. He doesn't have to deal with that anymore. Now, his goal is to, to, to take me and to work in my life and to discipline me and train me like a good coach so that I become more and more like him. Am I making sense? This is what God's doing. But if I'm not invested in the process and I'm not saying, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'll receive this. I may not like it. I may not fully understand it. But yes, Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. I think, among other things, the greatest challenge of our life is the challenge of character development. Character. You and I cannot build character. That's God's job. Even the non-believer, the best non-believer, you look at that person and say, boy, they have a marvelous character. When you look closely, there's chinks. There's flaws in that character. Without God, at some point, that character is going to break down. It's God who's at work in us to build our character. It's just simply another way of saying that he's at work making us like Jesus. That's his great purpose. And when you, when you realize that and you begin to receive that and you say, I want that for my life. I want to be like Jesus. You can't do anything about it. You can't make it happen. It's up to him. You have to trust him. Some of you are familiar with this verse in Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And again, God has decreed that we be like him. You shall be holy because I am holy. Now, I want to identify, we talked about this again last week, so this is kind of a review from last time, but I want to identify specifically some of the kinds of tests. And the Bible is full of them, and I encourage you, when you read your Bibles, look for these tests. And I'm going to identify four kinds. I'm going to identify loyalty tests. I'm going to identify uh, obedience tests. I'm going to identify uh, integrity tests and word tests. And there's some overlap for all of these. So, so when you hear me say, uh, this is a loyalty test, okay, I think you'll clearly see that. But contextualized into that loyalty test is also some obedience, some word, and some integrity. So they're not all simply identified individually, although I'm going to do that just for the sake of illustration, okay? 
So the first one I want to look at is in Genesis chapter 2. What happens in Genesis chapter 2? Do anybody remember? This is the creation, this is the, this is the recounting of the sixth day of creation, more particularly the recounting of the creation of the man and the woman. So we get more detail into the creation of the man and the woman. And God giving the man his word, his command. So there's going to be a demand here for loyalty. There's going to be a demand for integrity, a demand to receive the word, act on the word, obedience. So we all know basically the account, right? We know what happens in Genesis chapter 2. So God puts the man in the garden. Uh, everything's in place. The heavens are in place. The whole animal realm's in place. Nothing is missing. All of creation is in place. And God puts the man in the garden. Man is the crowning jewel in God's creation. And then God says to the man, he's in the garden, he says, you're, in effect, you're going to be my vice regent. You're going to, I want to put stewardship with you over all of my creation. So I want you to, to rule the garden, rule the animal kingdom, subdue it. There's a warning therein, rule and subdue. There's a test coming. What's the test, do you think? What's the loyalty test all about? What did God, what did God command the man? You're free to eat from all the trees of the garden, but there's one tree, the big one, right there in the middle. You can't miss it. Don't eat of that tree. The day you eat of that tree is the day you die. The day you eat of that tree is the day you're separated. You're separated from me. You're separated from yourself. You're separated from your neighbor. And you're separated from creation. That's what sin does. That's what disobedience does. It separates us. It's all about relationship. So he gives him the command, don't eat of that tree. And then he says in the very next verse, it's not good that he be alone. I'm going to make for him a helper suitable for him. Someone who will match him exactly, perfectly. Isn't that cool? God gave me my perfect helpmate. She matches me perfectly. I've learned over the years to say thank you, Lord. More and more, genuinely. So he places him in the garden. What happened next? They went about their business, they took care of business, they ruled the animal kingdom, they took care of everything, and they obeyed God, right? Eh. How many know about chapter 3 of Genesis? Chapter 3 of Genesis chronicles what we know as, theologically speaking, the fall of man. Man fell from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection by simply eating of the fruit of the tree they were commanded not to eat from. This is a loyalty test. It comes down to this. That tree is the test tree. It simply is this. Will you choose to remain dependent on me 
or will you choose to be independent of me? Will you succumb to the temptation to be independent, or will you choose to be dependent? How would God know if they would remain dependent on him? They'd obey him. If they disobey him, they're choosing independence. Make sense? It's a loyalty test. But it also involves what? It involves his word. There's a word test in there. It also involves uh, obedience. It also involves integrity, doesn't it? You see? You see how this is? God is going to place us in situations. He's already, from eternity past, ordained how our lives in different situations in which our lives are going to fit. Life is not just simply chaotic. There's a design and order to it. There's a sovereign God. And he brings us to these places of choices. He brings us to these places where we must trust him. And as we do, we grow in our faith. We grow in integrity. We grow in obedience. We grow more like him. So there's a loyalty test there. Let me talk to you about integrity tests. Integrity test, God will use these things that he chooses to evaluate our intentions in order to shape our character. Character is vital. Integrity is vital to character. Does that make sense? Now, there's three Three points to the integrity test. The first point is there's always going to be a challenge to consistency with our convictions. We should all have convictions. This is what I believe. This is what I stand on. I, I don't cross that line. I have certain convictions. So there's a challenge to those convictions. Secondly, What's the response to the challenge? How do I respond to that challenge? And thirdly, the resulting expansion or shrinking of my character. If I respond in a fruitful manner, in a good manner, in a positive manner, to whatever challenge God has brought into my life to test my integrity, if I respond positively, my character grows. If I respond negatively and I fail the test, my character shrinks. It's just that simple. I think we all understand that from our own experience. The more we fail these integrity tests, we grow smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. We find ourselves withdrawing more and more and more and more. Relationship, you can talk about it all day long, but it's, it, it, it's, it ceases to be a, a viable entity for our life. We just opt out. It takes courage to be in relationship, doesn't it? Yes, it does. There's another interesting testing that goes on in Genesis. It encompasses a large section, chapter 37 through chapter 50. Who is the subject of those chapters? Anybody remember? A young man, the runt of the litter, name of... Joseph, that's right. Joseph is a fascinating study, isn't he? You read and you study Joseph's life, you go, golly, this guy is really getting it. Now, Joseph, 
I submit to you that his personal character, while morally pure, was marred by spiritual pride to such a degree that his brothers couldn't stand him. Now, some of us know people like that. Some of us are people like that. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. And so his brothers, they've got to do something with him. So rather than kill him like they want to do and break their father's heart, they feign the fact that he was killed by a wild animal and they end up selling him in slavery to the Midianites. Now, can you imagine what Joseph thinks? He's thrown in a pit. His brothers throw him in a pit. The Midianites come. They sell him. He's going off on a caravan with the Midianites to who knows where. You think he's going, what is going on? What's happening to me? Why did they do this to me? The Midianites sell him to who? They get to Egypt. They sell him to an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. He gains Potiphar's favor, and Potiphar makes him chief of his household. But not only does he gain Potiphar's favor, he gains the favor of who? Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's off on a business trip. She sees her chance, and she tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph says, wow, all right, let's, let's get it on. <laughs> a little vernacular. Does he do that? No, what does he do? He flees. He flees. He does the righteous thing. You see, he has a moral character. But there's still this chink in his life that he's totally unaware of. He's blind to, but God's not blind to it. So he flees. What happens next? Potiphar comes home. He hears about it. He takes Joseph's side. No, no. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of wrongdoing. Potiphar is left with no choice but to do what? Throw him in jail. Now he finds himself in jail. I didn't do anything. I'm totally innocent. Call my lawyer. That's what most of us do. We call on the lawyer before we call on the Lord. He's in jail. We don't know how long he's languishing in there, but he meets two guys, the baker and the cupbearer. They have dreams. They're puzzled by the dreams. He interprets the dreams. The dreams come true. One dies, one's killed, the other survives and goes on to serve Pharaoh, the cupbearer, true? But he tells the cupbearer, he says, Please remember me when you gain your freedom. The guy forgets him. God. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And the couple remembers there was a guy back in jail who interpreted his, maybe he could. He tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh has Joseph brought, Pharaoh, in, or Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Boom. He's out of jail. The turning point, I think, 
in his life came when he was in jail. All those trials, all those accusations, all that suffering. To deal with him in his pride. He becomes second only to Pharaoh. But this does not go to his head. And then we're told that there's a famine in Israel. And his family, notably his brothers, have to come to Egypt to get food. Who do they engage? They engage Joseph. Do they know that Joseph's their brother? Not yet. But later on, he'll reveal himself to them. And when he does, they're terrified. Because they know for sure that he's going to get revenge on them. Now, why would they think that he's going to take revenge on them? Have you ever noticed that we attribute to other people motives that we harbor in our own heart? This tells you where those guys are. But Joseph doesn't. He reveals himself. And he tells them, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. People intend to harm us. The devil intends to harm us. This world intends to harm us. But whatever God allows, like he did with Job, he allows for our what? He allows for our good. Did Joseph go through trials? Did he go through suffering, unjust suffering on the surface of it? Yes. Was God at work in his life? All the while. His, there's another one. Daniel. How many remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 1. Daniel faced an integrity test. It could have cost him his life. What was the integrity test? It was an inner conviction about what? Food. He had been captured along with his cohorts, been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. They'd been transported to Babylon, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to enroll all of these young men in Nebuchadnezzar University to train them to be Babylonians in culture so they could work for him and run the country for him. The first test was this food test. It's a simple test. It's not that big a deal. Now, most of us are familiar with the test. He's, he's given an overseer. The overseer says, you know, Pharaoh wants, or uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants you to eat his royal food. And he says, no, 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 just give us our vegetables and water. And after 10 days, come and check us out and see that we're going to be more healthy than the other people. And that's exactly what happened. So he passed this integrity test, didn't he? Did he have to do that? No. But it was something he was convicted about in his own heart, his own life. He stood firm, and he saw God provide a solution. He saw God provide the solution. This would enable him to stand on an even more difficult issue later. In chapter 6 of Daniel, because he passed that test, he faces another one now. What's, what's the test in chapter 6? Anybody remember? It involves worship, doesn't it? Nobody was to worship any other god except 
Nebuchadnezzar. There's a conspiracy by all of the, all the other governors and, and leaders in Babylon against Daniel. And so they trap him. He will not worship the statue. Instead, he goes home, opens his windows, and bows down toward Jerusalem, worships the one true God. His enemies go and they complain to the king. The king cannot break his word. He already said if anybody worships any other God, they must die. Wow. So what happens to Daniel? He's arrested and he is placed in jail along with a bunch of lions. Does God rescue him? Wow, don't you love this? When you trust him, when you trust him, when you trust him, and you recognize these are tests to grow us, you pass the test, he will rescue you. We see it again and again and again. There are a variety of integrity tests. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. There's values. They test our values. And our values determine our convictions. There are temptations. Various temptations. And those temptations test our convictions. Persecutions come. And the persecutions test our steadfastness. There are loyalty tests. These tests are allegiances. And there are also restitution tests. These tests are honesty. Now, some people actually do not pass integrity tests. Some people fail. The classic example is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The account is of Saul and Samuel. I remember this account. Samuel, who is the greatest prophet Israel knew, Samuel goes to Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. He goes to him and he says, God commands you to go wipe out the Amalekites. Everybody. Don't spare anybody. Don't spare anything. Completely annihilate them. Now you have to know the Amalekites were evil, wicked, vile people. Samuel, or Saul, goes and does the whole job? No, he does a partial job. So he comes back. Samuel shows up on the scene to check up on him. Did you do what God commanded you? Samuel says, yes, sir. Or Saul says, yes, sir. Samuel says, you did? What's this I hear in my ears? The bleating of sheep, the lowing of cows. The soldiers did that. I obeyed God, but the soldiers, no, 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 no. He failed a very important integrity test. What was the consequence of that failure? It was huge. The kingdom was taken from him. And now... Samuel turns to who? David. David will be soon anointed king. Huge integrity test. Huge. 
Some people don't pass them, and there are great consequences. There are obedience tests. Obedience tests. What is that? Will I learn to recognize, understand, and obey God's word? Fairly simple. We saw a, a classic example of an obedience test last week. Genesis chapter 22. What happened in Genesis chapter 22? God tested who? He tested Abraham. And what was the test? I want you to go to a place I'll show you. And I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, on the altar there. Wow. Abraham says, but, 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 but. Does he? No. Did he recognize God's voice? Yes, he did. Did he understand God's voice? Yes, he did. Did he obey God's voice? Yes, he did. This was especially a difficult thing for him to do because it was through Isaac God's promise would be fulfilled. We have no understanding, no insight, except from the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, where the writer of the Hebrews gives us insight. And he tells us, Abraham reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. See, it's one thing to obey when it seems logical and necessary, right? But it's a whole other thing when obeying simply doesn't make sense on the surface. It didn't make sense to Abraham, humanly speaking, logically speaking, to kill his son. Yet he chose to obey. My part is to obey him. The results are in his hands. This doesn't make sense. This is not logical. I need, what about me? What about my rights? What about that, 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 that? Shut up. Your part is to obey. Your part is to trust him. His word. Leave the results in his hands. He wants to grow you. There's another two more obedience tests. Acts chapter 5. Lovely couple. The context is the early church. People are loving on each other, and where there's need, you know, someone who has a, a, an extra house or property, they're selling the stuff and laying the proceeds of the sale at the apostles' feet so there'd be no needs in the church. Wow! What magnanimity! What graciousness! Barnabas is cited as one of those people who sells a house and brings the money. And by contrast, there's another couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They also are members of the local church. They think, well, we have some property. Let's sell our property. No problem. They sell the property. They bring the money, lay it at the apostles' feet. Except there's a question there. Did they bring the whole proceeds from the sale? No. Did they say they were bringing the whole proceeds from the sale? Yes. Could they have kept back part for themselves? Absolutely. Peter tells them that. But they lied. They lied. So Ananias comes in, 
The Holy Spirit's revealed this to Peter. Peter goes to Ananias. He says, did you do what you said you did? Yes, I did. <laughs> he struck dead. Whoa. They carry him out. His wife Sapphira comes in. Peter questions her. Same thing. She lies. Boom, she's struck dead. Luke says, there was great fear in the church. <laughs> Object lesson. Example, again, of an obedience test. But there's a second obedience test. It's not quite so obvious. The second obedience test has to do with Peter. Now, I don't know about you. It's not my favorite thing to have to confront people. This is your favorite thing? No, we avoid it at all costs. But Peter had to confront them. He was obedient to go and do that which was very, very awkward and uncomfortable for him. He obeyed. When it's difficult, we obey. The last is the word test. Word tests. These tests are ability to understand and receive a word from God personally and then trust God to work that out in our life. I don't work it out. He works it out. I trust him to do that. When passed, when I pass a word test, when I'm faithful with a little bit of light, what can I expect? More light. He reveals more to me. I'm continually amazed that people say, gosh, you know, I'd, I'd like to know the Bible. I really want to start reading it. Just start reading it. Yeah, but there's so much there. It's overwhelming. I just, just start. You respond to it, God will give you more insight and more, more light. Now, again, word tests are frequently combined with integrity tests, obedience tests, loyalty tests, because the revealed truth will test our integrity, it'll test our obedience, and it will test our loyalty. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Great example of this. Word test. Samuel, a young boy. His mother Hannah, if you recall, was barren. She prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give her a son. God heard her prayer, gave her a son. She said, God, if you give me a son, I'll devote him to you. So she raised him. She weaned him. She nursed him. And when he was old enough, he, she trusted him to the high priest Eli, wicked Eli, and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You have to read about those guys. They're just vile. So here's this young boy growing up under the tutelage of the high priest Eli, who is just a bad person. But God protects him. So one night, young Samuel is asleep. He's awakened by a voice. Samuel. He thinks it's Eli, so he gets up, runs over to Eli. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. He goes, lay down. Second time. Samuel, he goes up to Eli. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go lay down. Third time, Samuel, 
He goes, Eli. And I says, I didn't call you. He said, but you go back, go back and lay down. And if that voice calls you again, here's how you respond. How many remember what Eli told him? What did he say? Speak, for your servant is listening. We get that kind of mixed up. He said, speak, for your servant is listening. We go, listen, for your servant is speaking. Don't we? We're fond of telling God what to do and how to do. I'm convinced that a lot of our prayers go unanswered because it's our agenda. We say, I I got it all figured out here, God. This is what you need to do. Rather than saying, I'm listening. You speak to me. But you're not going to hear him unless what? You spend time with him. You get to know him. So this is an integrity test, which allowed Samuel to grow up and hear from God and be the greatest prophet that Israel would ever know. And he would be absolutely strategic to oversee the transition between King Saul and King David. Just critical. God uses his word to give a number of things in a variety of ways. He uses his word to give us inner conviction. Have you ever been reading his word and his word convicts you? He uses his word to assign ministry. He uses his word to solve problems. He uses his word to motivate us toward vision, to encourage our faith, to give us assurance, and to clarify guidance. All these tests, be they loyalty tests, be they integrity tests, be they obedience tests, word tests, faith tests, they're all designed by God for one purpose. Can you guess what that one purpose is? to make us like himself. We want to be sensitive to these tests. The Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He met a huge test, didn't he? On the road to Damascus, recorded in Acts chapter 9. God struck him blind. He was on his way persecuting the church up in Damascus. God stopped him, struck him blind. He had three days to consider his choices and his categories. He chose for Jesus. Became the greatest apostle the church has ever known. He faced another test. And he talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was given a great vision. Great things were revealed to him. And he says, to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, to keep pride because I've been so privy to what you've shown me. What was given to him? A thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. To afflict him. To keep him humble. Three times, he says, I entreated him to remove this. And three times he said, what? My grace is sufficient. You'll endure this. I'll give you grace to endure it. I'm not going to remove it. You need this in your life. My determination. Whoa. 
Job was tested, wasn't he? Big time. If you look at the very first verse of the book of Job, describes him, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. You would think this guy's got it together. Why then? Why then does God allow Satan to unleash his power on him? Strips him of his wealth, his family, and his health. His wife says to him, haven't you had enough? Curse God and die. Get it over with. No. His faith was being tested, not only for him, but for guess who? Us. That we would benefit by his experience, his steadfastness. And in the end, did God restore him? Double everything that he lost. Listen to Job's words in Job chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Oh, should that be our testimony? When you have tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Lord, this trial, this test, this inconvenience, this sorrow, this pain in the next situation. I know you're in control. I know you're using it. I trust you. I'm going to be faithful. I want to close with the greatest promise in the Bible. Who knows what the greatest promise in the Bible is? Where is it found? Romans. Romans 8. Romans 8. 28. And Paul says, and we know We know that in the most good things, oh, all things, I'm sorry, that in all things, good, bad, everything, who's at work? God is at work. God is at work. For my good. Have you ever had people say, ah, it'll all work out. It'll all work out in the end. Not necessarily. Only for believers. Only believers have the confidence that God's working for our good. What a terrible loss for people who are not believers. Stuff happens in their life, they will not look up. Curse God and die. But we have the confidence that God is at work in my life for my good because what? I love him and be called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose once again? What's his purpose again? To make us like Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great purpose. And thank you for the fact that you are faithful to your work. And Lord, we... We just grieve and apologize for our complaining and our moaning and our whining. You want to grow us up from infancy to maturity. Sharpen our characters, deepen and enrich them again so that we'll be like you. So we can enjoy full, unhindered relationship with you. Not distracted by anything else. Have your way in our life. As we come to your table this morning, we give you thanks.
We love you this morning. Amen? Amen. Take a few moments, prepare your hearts, and approach the table. And if, after everyone has the elements, we'll all take communion together.